So the last couple of weeks, Joey has preached and specifically looking at the crucifixion, looking at the cross of Christ and what happened uh, kind of immediately around that event in history. Uh, we think about the crucifixion, we think about the cross, and it's really the climax of all of human history. It's the climactic event in all, all time. And we, we preach, or Joey preached on what happened at that cross, what Jesus accomplished on our behalf in those, in, in those moments as he was nailed to a cross, as he was put up, and as he died as a sacrifice for all of us. And we can see why that would be the climax of all of human history, that he reconciled us to God in doing what he did on the cross. So if you want to think of that, and you want to think of what Joey has, has spent his time doing in the last couple of weeks, think of that in sort of this static uh, way that he preached on this one event in time and what happened at that moment. Well, this morning, we're going to be in John 21 and sort of moving forward from the cross. And if you want to think of this as sort of the progression from the cross and what comes out of the cross. And specifically, we're going to look at a conversation between Jesus and Peter. And in that, we're going to see that Jesus forgives, that Jesus restores, and that Jesus calls. And he's doing so to Peter at the time in the conversation that we're looking at. But Jesus does the exact same thing for all of us. Jesus forgives, Jesus restores, and Jesus calls. So let's look at the text together. Again, we're in John 21. Uh, Dave read verses 15 through 19. Those are the verses we're going to spend the majority of our time in. But I do want to read the passage immediately preceding that because it sort of sets the scene for what is going on here uh, in this conversation between Jesus and Peter. So beginning in verse 1, John 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as, as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. They, Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Now, this is a total aside, but as I read this passage and I got to this part and I read it over and over, I couldn't help but think of Peter as Forrest Gump in this moment. Because if you think about the story of Forrest Gump, there's that scene where he's coming in on the boat and he sees Captain Dan. And he just, 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 uh, it's a total instinctual reaction, he jumps right off the boat. And his boat goes crashing into the dock and he's screaming, Captain Dan, Captain Dan. And Peter here just instinctually 
responds to Jesus, jumps out of the boat, leaves the rest of the disciples to do the work. It's an incredible scene. Continuing on, verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. We'll stop there. We see right off the bat that Jesus forgives. Jesus forgives. Now you might read that passage, you might hear that passage and think, Jeff, what are you talking about? Jesus doesn't say anything in there about forgiving. There's no, there's no language around that. Well, think about what's going on here. The mere fact that Jesus is speaking with Peter speaks to his forgiveness. The mere fact that he considers Peter a disciple at this point in the game speaks to Jesus and his forgiveness. Because consider where we saw Peter and Jesus and the rest of the disciples back in John 13. Think about that scene. Think about what was going on there. Jesus was headed to his cross in the moment from an earthly perspective that he most needed his disciples and most needed Peter. Peter did nothing but deny Jesus three times. Peter wouldn't admit, wouldn't acknowledge his relationship with Jesus to a servant girl. This is what has happened. This is the, the prior interaction of, of Jesus and Peter. And so the, the very fact that Jesus is speaking with Peter in this moment shows us how incredibly forgiving he is to welcome Peter back in this way. One author says this about Christ in this moment. He says, Jesus, in his gracious forgiveness, gave Peter the chance to wipe out the memory of the threefold denial by a threefold declaration of love. And you already heard the rest of this text when when Dave read it. So you, you see how what he's talking about here in that Jesus prompts Peter three times with this question, giving him the opportunity to do away with his denial. You know, in 2008, I had the uh, incredible opportunity to travel to Kenya. And while I was there, uh, we were working with the school. And we were, uh, I think at the time, I was, um, I was painting a, a room in this school. And so while we were there, there were a couple of electricians 
there doing their work. And one of them specifically was named Larry. Uh, I don't know why uh, a Kenyan is named Larry, first of all. I asked him about that, but he didn't want to tell me. Why he's named Larry, I have no idea, because he was as Kenyan as it gets. He wasn't from the city. He was from, uh, you know, villages north of Nairobi. So he was Kenyan, and his real name was not Larry. But anyways, that's an aside. Larry went on to tell me one of the most soul-shaking stories I think I've ever heard and probably will ever hear. So this is 2008. In 2007... Kenya went through just uh, an incredible season of violence because they had an election that didn't go well, and that's putting it lightly. Tribe turned on tribe. There was confusion over who was the winner. And so there was just massive violence in the country. And specifically, the worst scene of this was a town called Eldoret. And this was the town that Larry was from originally. So Larry tells me the story of how his own friends came into his home and attacked him. His own friends, because they were part of a different tribe, they walked into his home and they began to attack him. And not only this, but they tied Larry up and they attacked his wife and his daughter. They proceeded to kill his wife and his daughter. And then they took Larry from his home and they took him to a small business and they burned his small business to the ground. They ensured that Larry witnessed all of this. I don't know what you said. I'm getting teary. I'm just thinking about that story again. I didn't know what to say. I mean, Larry's telling me this story. How do you respond to a story like that? Well, if that wasn't enough, Larry then tells me that in the short time since this, has, this had happened, this is only months since this had happened, he told me that he had forgiven his friends. He told me that he had, he had talked with them and that they were not necessarily friends again, but that he had forgiven them. That he had, he had, he had, he had talked with them, he had discussed that and ensured that they knew that he forgave them. You forget, how do you forgive somebody for something like that? I have no idea. I sat there speechless before Larry. But I tell you that story because Larry is a mere man. Larry, even if he has this profound ability and capacity to forgive, Larry's still just a man. Just a Kenyan that I met one day. And if Larry is able to forgive his friends, for uh, the, the heinous acts of what they did to him that day. How much more can the God-man forgive? How much more can the most gracious being that the world has ever known forgive? I think a lot of times when we think about grace, because of the nature of grace, we have a hard time explaining it. Think about it. It's a really hard concept to really fully explain. And because of that, because we can't fully explain it, and we don't always understand it if we're honest, we tend to think at times that there's no way that God could really forgive us. I mean, think about it. There's no way that God could 
could really forgive me for that one thing that I did that I knew was wrong and I continued to do it. There's no way that a perfect and holy God could forgive me of that. I knew I was wrong and I continued to do it. But if Larry, a mere human being, has the capacity within himself to forgive his friends of what they did to him, just think about the graciousness of who God is. Think about the graciousness of Jesus. And hopefully realize that Jesus can forgive you of anything you've ever done and even anything that you will do. Jesus forgives just by merely talking with Peter in this situation. He has forgiven Peter. Moving on, verse 16. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So we see Jesus forgiving Peter, but here he takes it further. Jesus is restoring Peter. This is almost, if you want to think about it, a ceremony of sorts. That Jesus is reinstating Peter to his place. It's not a coincidence that Jesus asked this question three times. Jesus didn't, it's not that Jesus didn't hear Peter, he didn't hear his response the first time or the second time and he continued. No, he asked this question very intentionally three times. Because as that author, William Barclay, said earlier, that Jesus is giving Peter this opportunity to forget about his betrayal, to forget about his denials. Jesus is demonstrating profound grace to his disciple here in restoring him. And it's definitely worthy to note that, that Jesus is doing this publicly. It's one of the reasons I wanted to read the passage leading into this, because Jesus is doing this in front of the rest of the disciples. This isn't Jesus and Peter alone in a room and, 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 and it's hush-hush that Peter's now going to be reinstated as a disciple. No, Jesus is, is intentionally doing this in front of the rest of the disciples that they know that Jesus has forgiven Peter and Jesus is restoring Peter. It's also, once again, interesting to think about this situation in contrast to John 13 and to see the interaction here and specifically to look at how Peter responds to this. Because if we look at John 13, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples and he's talking to them about his death and his crucifixion. And he says that the shepherd will be struck and that the sheep would flee. Well, Peter, in his, his arrogance, I, I, I really I thought about this and I, I couldn't think of another word to say there. G, or Peter, in his pure arrogance, 
steps forward and says, Jesus, no. No. Even if the rest of these suckers in this room abandon you completely, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the grave with you, Jesus. I don't care what these guys do. Not me, Jesus. Do you know my name? I am Peter. Pure arrogance. Pure pride. Comparing himself to the rest of the disciples. Not just, I will follow you to the grave, but I'm better than the rest of these guys. But what do we see from Peter here? We don't see any comparison at all. I think Peter understood. Peter said, I, you know, I, I gotta get over this comparing thing because that didn't work out too well for me the first time. And it's almost as if Jesus gave him that opportunity. Look at what Jesus says in verse 15. To get back to it. Jesus asks specifically, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now there's back and forth amongst authors about, you know, what is Jesus saying there with more than these? There's weird theories about what that could be. I'm pretty confident in saying that Jesus was talking about the rest of the disciples. I think all the other theories, they're, they're going off uh, on a tangent. Jesus was referring there to the rest of the disciples when he asks Peter that question. So Peter even has the, the, the end, so to speak, to again compare himself to the rest of the disciples, and he doesn't do it. He's humble, he's contrite, and he just simply says, Jesus, you know that I love you. You know everything. Jesus is restoring Peter, and he's doing it publicly before all of his disciples. Let's continue on. Verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So we've seen that Jesus forgives, we've seen that Jesus restores, and here Jesus is calling. So I said on the front end that we see this as sort of a progression forward from the cross. It's sort of this moving forward in the Christian life that Jesus has forgiven, and that's the beginning of it all. He restores, and then he calls. And specifically, as he's speaking to Peter here, it's almost as if he's putting, G or putting Peter on alert. He's putting Peter on alert to what he's calling him to. What this is going to look like. He's alerting Peter to the reality that Peter's life is no longer his own. And think about it. In, in terms of Christianity and, and, and the Christian life, is this not ultimately true of all of us? That in, in, in light of the, the cross and what happened at the cross and what Jesus did on the cross, our response is recognizing that our life is no longer our own and that we are now called to respond to the gospel, called to respond to Jesus 
on a cross. Jesus specifically uses this this phrase in verse 18 where he says, you will stretch out your hands. And then John, the gospel writer, in verse 19 says, this he showed, or he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. I don't know about you, but I read those, what's in the parentheses, parentheses there, and I thought, what is he talking about? I don't read anything in that that talks to me about the death of Peter. But this phrase, stretch out your hands, in their day, would have been an, an, an indirect, but yet an understood reference to crucifixion. It would have been an understood reference, so that Peter, specifically, the disciples there with them, and really anybody that read this text in, 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 in first, second, third centuries would understand that reference. That Jesus, even though he doesn't say, Peter, you're going to a cross, he says, Peter, you're going to a cross. Jesus was putting Peter on alert for what was next. And yet, at the same time, he was commissioning Peter. He was commissioning Peter to what was next in his life. For him to recognize that his, his life was to now be lived on mission. His life was to now be lived as a response to the gospel. And doesn't a, a lot of the New Testament speak to this? This reality, not only for Peter, but for us as well? We look at verses like Romans 12, 1, that talks about this idea of living our lives as living sacrifices. That everything we do is a sacrifice to God by our, by our lives, by our very existence. It's a living sacrifice. We see in a passage like Ephesians 2.9, where it says that we are created to do good works. And if you think about it, that's verse 9 that follows verse 8 that speaks of the cross and speaks of, of how we are saved by grace through faith. The New Testament regularly speaks about our lives being lived in response to the gospel. Being lived on mission for God because of what Jesus originally accomplished on the cross. One of the great things about this passage, I think, is, you know, as we look at Jesus interacting with Peter. It's an intense conversation. There's no way around it, especially he's talking about stretching out your hands and putting them on a cross. I mean, this is intense. One of the great things that we have on our side is history, that we can now look back and we can see even other parts of Scripture that speak to what happened beyond this. What happened after this conversation? Did Peter bail? Did Peter hear what Jesus was calling him to and bail? Not at all. We have the book of Acts that speaks regularly of how the the difficulties and the challenges that Peter faced and yet how he was faithful throughout. And the passage that Dave read earlier maybe speaks with, with the most clarity of any other text in the New Testament to speak about how Peter responded to this conversation. I'm just going to read the uh, first verse of that once again. 
This is 1 Peter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. As a fellow elder, Peter says. What is Jesus calling Peter to here in John 21? He's calling him to be a pastor. He's calling him to feed his sheep. He's calling him to be an under-shepherd of Christ. And we now have the benefit of looking back and seeing 1 Peter 5 and saying, Peter got it. Peter understood. Peter was faithful. Peter was obedient. That in spite of, of the intensity of what Jesus was calling him to, he was faithful. He was faithful. And even as we read through this text, as we discuss it, as we think through this, we see Peter being called <clears throat> as a, a pastor of Jesus' sheep. We should be careful to, to be too specific with this idea of calling. So I know this is something that I've, I've dealt with a lot in, in thinking through what is Jesus calling me to? I get really, really specific. And then I think, okay, if I don't do this one thing, then I'm disobedient. Then I'm, I'm not being faithful to Jesus. Yes, in this instance, Jesus was calling Peter to be a, a pastor and a shepherd, and he was. That's great. But as we think about how does this apply, how do we bring this to 2013? I think it's helpful, helpful for us to ask simple questions. To not... Not get too specific, but to ask simple questions. How does the reality that we are called to be on mission for Christ, how does that affect the way we act in our workplace? How does that affect the day-to-day of, of us in our workplace? What does that do for us in our relationships within our family? How does it change those relationships? How does it change our relationships around our friends, our buddies, our girlfriends? How does it, how does it change everything? How does the reality of being called by the, the very person that gave his life for you, that did something that you could never do on your own by dying on the cross and reconciling you to God, how does that affect your decision-making? How does that affect when you have to make decisions about life and significant life decisions that affect almost everything? If you're going to move somewhere, if you're going to take a new job, if you're going to marry this person, if you're not going to marry this person, how does being on mission for God and being called by our Savior affect that? How does it affect the way you spend your time? And let's get real serious here. How does it affect the way you spend your money? How does it affect the way you spend your time, your resources, your money? I want us to get this perspective 
of Romans 12, 1. What is a living sacrifice? A living sacrifice is something that is given over fully to something. It's given over completely to something. And in this case, our lives are to be living sacrifices before God. Because as we have seen in Jesus' conversation with Peter, that coming from the cross, where he accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished, he then forgives, he then restores, and he then calls us. 